0: Mitch McConnell, Mitch, I don't want to hurt your reputation, but we really are friends. <laughs> and that is not a, an epiphany we're having here at the moment. You've always done exactly what you said. You're a man of your word and you're a man of honor. Thank you for being my friend.
1: A man of honor? In what universe?
0: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. this clouds to the left jokers to
2: the right. Here I am stuck in the middle
1: with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is The broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. In Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF. And coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today he and Desi Doyen are taking the day off. So once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host my own show, The Nicole Sandler Show. It's based at NicoleSandler.com and available on the Progressive Voices Network and a number of other places and always at NicoleSandler.com. So come check it out. We've got a show for you today. (laughs) Actually, a guest coming up in the next segment is a name that you should be familiar with, although maybe you won't be able to spell it correctly. Peter Strzok was an FBI agent. He's actually the FBI agent who began the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. And we know where that got him. Attacked by the guy who became president. Inexplicably. Anyway, His book, Compromised, is now out in paperback, and he'll join us in just a few minutes. But, as we usually do, we'll start off with some news. No lack of that these days. And for a change, we'll start off with good news. Who knew? As they do on the first Friday of every new month, the Labor Department released the monthly job numbers Friday morning. The warnings in the morning newsletters were pretty explicit. CNN's headline read, White House officials are bracing for a weak January jobs report later this morning due to speed bumps in the road caused by the Omicron variant of COVID 19. Punchbowl News put it more succinctly in their headline A Bad Jobs Day on Tap? Well, go figure they got it wrong again. The U.S. economy created many more jobs than were expected in January, even as Omicron spread like wildfire, hitting virtually every corner of the country but the news was actually really good. Payrolls increased by 467,000 jobs last month. Data for December was revised higher to show 510,000 jobs created instead of the 199,000 that was announced to great disappointment. So we got that going for us. And I just have to share this with you. CNBC's Rick Santelli. Oh, yo, (laughs) you know him. Well... He was a little excited by this news. We now have data popping out for the
3: January employment report, and it is much better than expected. 467,000. 467,000 multiples of what we were expecting. And if we look at private payrolls, 444,000. Manufacturing up 13,000. The unemployment rate up to four percent so it did move up one tenth from 3.9 to four percent month over month average hourly earnings a whopping seven tenths year over year 5.7 big numbers average work week 34.5 that drew down a bit that somewhat makes sense and maybe the best news of all The labor force participation rate, which has been stuck at 61.9. Remember, it was well over 63 pre-COVID. 62.2. It popped three tenths. That is a nice pop in the underemployment or the U6. 7.1%, 7.1%, it drops from 7.3%. let us go over a couple of things here. The household survey is where the unemployment rate comes from. They do include people on unpaid sick leave. So how ironic that that actually moved up a tenth when we're worried about people in the business or establishment survey that are on unpaid leave that aren't counted, but yet that number at 467,000 was quite strong. And when we come to earnings, up seven-tenths of 1%. Let me look. The high watermark, I think, has been up seven-tenths in April. It equals that. But that's powerful. And on the 5.7, on the uh, year-over-year, that's a post-COVID high. That is a powerful number. Remember, that was 3% pre-COVID.
1: Kind of makes you wonder why the media is all doom and gloom about the economy, huh? Hmm. President Biden on Thursday said that the ISIS leader, who was killed in an attack, blew himself and members of his family up during this counterterrorism raid by U.S. special forces in northwestern Syria. There were no U.S. casualties during the operation. U.S. forces had to destroy a disabled helicopter before leaving the ISIS safe home. The operation came as concerns rise about a possible resurgence of ISIS. The raid was the second that has targeted this leader in Syria's rebel-held Idlib province. And then there's this. U.S. officials are claiming that Russia is planning to stage a fake attack by Ukraine in order to justify an invasion. This according to Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby, who said that the U.S. believes the Russian government is creating a, quote, very graphic propaganda video that would depict an attack by Ukrainian military or intelligence forces that would include corpses, actors depicting mourners, and images of destroyed locations. Russia's ambassador to the EU, Vladimir Chizhov, told CNN that Moscow is not planning any false flag operations to invade Ukraine. Okay. Okay. We'll see. The Republican National Committee is voting today, Friday, to censure Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two who've repeatedly spoken out against the former guy. Cheney and Kinzinger were two of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after the attack on January 6th, and they later became the only Republican to participate in the House committee investigating the riot and its causes and aftermath. Responding to the planned RNC move, Liz Cheney blasted her party's leadership in a statement. It reads, in part, I'm a constitutional conservative, and I do not recognize those in my party who have abandoned the Constitution to embrace Donald Trump. History will be their judge. I will never stop fighting for our constitutional republic, no matter what. End quote. Adam Kinzinger is retiring from Congress after this current term. But Cheney is running for re-election and faces a primary challenger, not only backed by Trump, but, wow, it gets curiouser and curiouser. The Washington Post is reporting that a deal brokered by RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel will allow the Republican National Committee to financially support Harriet Hageman, a candidate, in her bid to oust Liz Cheney, potentially paving the way for the National Party to, quote, send money, volunteers, data, and other things to the Wyoming Republican Party, who could then send those resources to use against Cheney. McDaniel also declined to say whether she would campaign personally against Cheney. No decision has been made. Okay. Okay. It was a busy Thursday for President Biden, who also went to New York City and met with the new mayor, Eric Adams, to discuss ways to fight gun violence. Just about two weeks after two New York City Police Department officers were shot and killed by a man who had an illegal gun. The Justice Department will work with state and local law enforcement to address, quote, drivers of violence according to the president. The department is also sending more resources to task forces working to shut down the iron pipeline. That's the route used to illegally funnel guns from the South to the Northern U.S. Biden declaring, quote, the answer is not to defund the police. It's to give you the tools, the training, the funding to be partners, to be protectors and community leaders. Oh no, she's back. Sarah Palin's defamation trial against the New York Times finally got underway in Manhattan on Thursday morning. Palin, entering the courtroom, told reporters, What am I trying to accomplish? Justice for people who expect the truth in the media. Elizabeth Williamson, who wrote the draft of the editorial that Palin is suing the paper over, testified, Palin claims the editorial defamed her by falsely suggesting a connection between her political rhetoric and the 2011 mass shooting in Tucson, Arizona that killed six people and injured 16, including Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. And finally, the Olympics are here. And you're thinking, what? Didn't we just have the Olympics last year? Well, yeah, but COVID, you know. So these are the 2022 Winter Olympics as scheduled. However, it's not going to be the way we usually have the Olympics. Um, About 3,000 athletes are competing in 15 disciplines across 109 events through February 20th. Politics have dominated the buildup, though. Uh, with several countries, including the U.S., imposing diplomatic boycotts to protest China's alleged human rights abusers. Well, I don't know that they're alleged, but they are. And then there's tensions in Eastern Europe that are also impacting the atmosphere at the Olympics as Russia is threatening to invade Ukraine. And then there are coronavirus concerns, a total of 308 Olympic-related cases were reported on Thursday. 111 of those involve athletes or team officials, according to the Beijing Olympic Committee. Participants are currently confined to a closed-loop system and will compete, eat, and sleep within that bubble without making any contact with the wider Chinese population until after the Games. I sense some other possible competitions in store. Hmm. Well, we'll think about it. Let's take a break. We'll come back on the other side and talk with Peter Struck next. I'm Nicole Sandler. Your guest host today on the broadcast. You're listening
4: to the broadcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like
1: you who stop by BradBlog.com/slash/donate. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. And I love filling in for Brad because I get to share some of my favorite interviews with you guys. And I had a really good one this past week. You'll recognize the name. So you know what? Let's just jump in. Peter Strzok is with us. We all learned of Peter Strzok during the Mueller investigation, and maybe before, while the the former guy was in the Oval Office. And uh, Peter Strzok was a um, uh, an FBI officer, officer agent. How do I? What, what, what was your exact title, Peter? <laughs> What were you agent agent, special agent, special agent for the FBI and again, worked on the Mueller investigation and got caught up. Well, when Donald Trump pulled him into the limelight, Uh, he's got a book out. It's called Compromised Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. It is now out in paperback. And I'm honored that you join us today. Thank you, uh, Pete, for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Now, I'd like to go through a little bit of the background first, because uh, we first met you it was a couple of years ago, or four years ago already, I guess. Wow, time flies. Um, <laughs> even when you're not having fun. Go figure. <laughs> so you actually, you're the guy who first opened the investigation into Russian interference in the in the 2016 election. Um Right. And uh, th- th- you did this. It was the, the Crossfire Hurricane was the name of the investigation. But that was that was on all you're doing. What prompted you to go there? What what nugget were you following to open this investigation?
4: Yeah. Hey, Nicole, it's great to be with you. And it, it's Time is crazy because that was five and a half years ago. But on the one hand, it feels like it's two months. On the other hand, it feels like a generation. And I don't know if that's Trump or COVID or what weird time is going on, but I can't. I I don't know whether it's long or short, but it's it's a great question. So in the late July of 2016, uh, we received information from a foreign ally that A guy on the Trump campaign by the name of George Papadopoulos had met with a representative of this foreign ally and told him, Hey, the Trump administration had received an offer of assistance from the Russians, saying that they had gotten damaging information about Obama and Hillary Clinton, and that they were offering to coordinate its release to help the Trump administration. And allegedly, Papadopoulos said that in the spring timeframe of 2016. And what is really interesting is, as you may recall, or your listeners may recall, at that, about that time, Russia really stepped up their computer intrusions into all kinds of US voting and uh, political party stuff, in particular, the DNC and DCCC email systems, and had, in fact, stolen a bunch of information that they then went about releasing um, predominantly through WikiLeaks. And there was a big dump of WikiLeaks, um, of things that you know, Podesta's email eventually came out. But and Trump, every opportunity was crowing about how great WikiLeaks was, how wonderful yeah, the remember. WikiLeaks, killer killer we was. love
0: WikiLeaks.
4: <laughs> yeah, and then yet later on, like a year later, he's like, I have no idea who they are. Right. Um of course. but that's that is the nature of truth in Trump. But in any event, that one of those big, big dumps in WikiLeaks, when that hit the press. That caused that foreign ally to kind of because they heard Papadopoulos and they thought whatever a young kid doesn't maybe he's just boasting or whatever, and then they see WikiLeaks doing this, they remember that conversation. They say, well, damn that that looks kind of exactly like what Papadopoulos said. Right in the case that and- Russia had this information that they were releasing to help in coordination to help Trump, and so anyway they get us they get us that information. We open a case, and despite what the crazy. Right-wing people might argue it was not a case on Trump. It was not a case on his campaign. We don't investigate campaigns. It was a case to try and determine who that person was who had received that offer that Papadopoulos talked about. And that was Crossfire Hurricane.
1: Right. Okay, now, but was that before or after the Russia, are you listening? Because didn't the Australians hear that and say, whoa, whoa, wait wait a minute, something's up here?
4: Yeah, that was all part of the, that was like two days later. So this... And that's the thing too, is people don't, it's hard when you look back. Yeah. I mean, even in, in my book, I, I try really hard to write just how many things were going on all at once, but it's difficult even taking yourself back in time. Like it, it, that was like two days later. So all this stuff is happening. WikiLeaks is releasing it. Trump is jumping all over it. A couple of days later, I think it's in Cary, North Carolina. He's at a, or somewhere in North Carolina, Kinston Airport, maybe he's making a speech. And that's where he says how great Wiki is. And then Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find Hillary Clinton's missing emails because you'll be rewarded handsomely or something like that. So all these things, and they're going on like one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And I think most Americans were hopefully bothered and stunned by statements like that. But then put yourself in the position of, an FBI agent working counterintelligence whose job is to combat foreign intelligence activity in the United States, especially by the Russians, especially by the Chinese, and seeing this going on, and not only seeing it going on, but at a minimum being really urged on by one of the two candidates for president of the United States. And that was deeply, I mean, saying it was deeply concerning is like about as deadpan as I can possibly say it. You know, I don't, most agents... By personality and training, tend to be very flat in terms of emotion. But it was when I say deeply concerning, it, it was it was the sort of thing we had never seen before in the FBI, and I think that's consistent with most people. I, I, I don't think we've seen anything like this as a nation, in a presidential candidate or later as a president. But no. yeah, it was it was bad.
1: What, and, when did he start personally targeting you?
4: Uh, this would have personally would have been after so I was from Returned to the FBI from the Mueller, in the special counsel's office in early August of 2017, and then DOJ leaked. There was a little bit that came out. Some Somebody in the government leaked, we think, I believe, the fact about that I had expressed in private context, said some negative things about Trump. Mm-hmm. And then DOJ uh, released those in the middle of the night to oh. the media in early mid-december of 2017 and that's when like within days i mean the next morning there was an article next morning i woke up and trump was tweeting about it i got a i got a text from my friend saying hey you need to (laughs) you need to be aware the president's talking about you which is mind blowing it is it's it's mind-blowing it's not i can't i i think if you're a person who becomes a senator or congressman or you know a secretary of something where you go through senate confirmation and you go up, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you've got the party behind you and you're sort of in the public eye. Maybe that's normal. But for somebody who's just like a regular government employee, it's mind-blowing. And there's so many. I mean, I wasn't, you know, Director Comey certainly was in the crosshairs, but he said hi. I mean, he was the director of the FBI. He was a very senior official. He had that. some of that comes with the territory. I mean, it was ridiculous. But then you saw this just onslaught of Trump attacking everybody from like, you know a bunch of us in the fbi but also you know, like M- ambassador yavadovich right. and uh alex Venman mm-hmm. and fiona hill and it was just this whole kind of professional government employee who traditionally doesn't get pulled into these kind of bs political games Trump started attacking left and right if they did things that displeased him. Anybody, anybody
1: who went against him, anybody who testified, anybody who has uh, the slightest negative opinion of him, he goes after. And so in this case, he was given ammo on you in the way of those text messages that I'm sure if you could do one thing over again, you probably wouldn't have done have made those text messages.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's every FBI agent has a political opinion. Mm hmm as an American, most do, and without exaggeration, like it's just not something as a culture in the FBI, just not something you talk about. Like I cannot go back in my career and think about all the people I worked with or supervised or worked for and say, oh, they thought this, that, because those conversations just don't take place. Now most most people are conservative because the FBI is a conservative organization. But, you know, these were in the context of, you know, very... It, these were in the context of a private set of communications, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was, that was something if I, it, it was, I wish in, if I could do it differently. Yeah, absolutely. That would be something I, I would change. Cause I, I'm just-
1: sure that that gave them something to go after you on. And, and again, it's the most personal thing. It's something you don't want <clears throat> out there. It was never meant for public consumption and they're using this, which had nothing to do with your feelings about Trump. Or your work as an investigator, um, but it's something that he could capitalize on and rile up the crowds about, and that's that's his mo. That's how he does things. So, um, you so you were an investigator on the Mueller investigation. You worked there, and then when all I guess when all this happened, or um, that's when you were taken off of it. Or okay, so what I want to ask you is. Looking back, as a civilian, you're not in the FBI anymore. When the Mueller report is released, what did you think about it? Do you think that, that they did the job they set out to do?
4: That's a great question. I think Mueller did the job that he was assigned to do. And I say that in the context of every special counsel, there's an appointment order. And Mueller had one, just like John Durham has one and you know other folks that lays out sort of the four corners of what he's supposed to do. And for Director Mueller in the special counsel's office, it was very precise in terms of looking at violations of law and connections to Russia of people who were around in the the campaign and in the administration in a series of cases. It was not to do a big far-flung counterintelligence investigation. That was something the FBI should have done that I don't think they did. Mm -hmm. And what bothered me the most at the time, and even more so now, was just the, the, the... abominable contemptible way that bill barr massaged the rollout of that report he was able in a two-week buffer to take a report that said the sky is blue and essentially lay out a summary saying the sky is purple Mm -hmm. and have that narrative take root even amongst like legitimate members of the press saying well we think the sky is kind of blue but he says it's purple so let's think about purple and had that two week period or however long it was where this counter narrative that it was all a hoax, that there wasn't collusion, take root in a way that by the time the actual report came out, the, the people were so confused because it was so complex. There's so many moving parts. I mean, Watergate was this tiny, right? It was a break in right? and then there was a right. movement of money and there was taping. It was this tiny little set of events. I mean, it wasn't tiny, but compared to the Mueller report, which was huge. And think about how many, you know. How many people were indicted? How many people were convicted? For most people to try and get their head around the facts, it was so complicated. And then Bill Barr throws out this alternate narrative and everybody I think just throws up their hand and says, ah, whatever, I don't get it. It's either if you're a Democrat, well, Trump's, we already know he's bad. If you're a Republican, you think, well, he's, this is all a witch hunt. And so this is all nonsense anyway. but but, that, it, but they didn't
1: read the report because obviously Bill right. Maher fudged what was in it. He tried to lessen the impact. That's an understatement. He misrepresented what was there. And then when it's released, uh, too many in the media, I think, are lazy. They didn't do their actual work and they bought Bill Barr's explanation, which they never should have done. Bill Barr shouldn't have done what he did. It seems like there was a lot of people doing what they shouldn't have done all around here. And then Mueller never came out and said, yes, there was collusion. So or or, or yes, Russia meddled in our election in plain English so that today you have people like even journalists that I used to respect, like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and some of those who are now like the whole Russia thing was a hoax. Well, Russia did try to meddle in our election, did they not? Isn't that what the investigation found?
4: Yeah, they absolutely did. And the thing was, by the time, you know, Director Mueller spoke, he eventually testified in front of Congress, which is not, I mean, Director Mueller is a very reserved man. I mean, I think when I think of Director Comey, he's an amazing (laughs) communicator. He is an extroverted communicator. He is (laughs) Right,
1: maybe a bit too much. Director
4: Mueller has always been very reticent to speak in public. And I think you saw that in the congressional appearance. And I also, I mean, at some point though, he said, look, you know, they, Russia was involved, Russia was interfering, Russia wanted to help Trump, Trump at a minimum knew that they were trying to help and welcome that assistance at a minimum. And and that's pretty straightforward. So that's all there. But, you know, you're right. I think most people, particularly reporters, you know, you stare at 600 pages of report and say, well, I've got this three page Bill bar summary, which probably sums it up. And so, you know, I can get out there and say outrageous things that get people round up on, a, on some talk show and I don't need to do my homework. So, you know, I think a lot of that went on. But, you know, the other interesting thing is uh, it, the, all of volume two, which were all these various acts of obstruction mm-hmm. that Trump engaged in, that th- some very compelling, some their are elements of the crime when you look at criminal law may or may not be met. But what was very clear in the analysis that Mueller did, and again, had extraordinary attorneys, said the precedent and policy of DOJ is pretty clear that somebody who's a sitting president can't be prosecuted for something like this. However two things. One, Mm -hmm. Congress, you can impeach. Mm -hmm. And two, when he's no longer in office, these restrictions no longer apply. And that was very clear to me reading it, again, knowing, having the benefit of knowing Director Mueller far, far better than most of your listeners do, that it was clear to me in the way he wrote it, that's exactly what it was doing at the end of the day. Here are all the facts and two outcomes. Congress, go impeach him. And here's all the data you need to do it. Because that's a political solution in a way that there are gaps that we may or may not be able to do something criminally. And two, we may not be able to prosecute several things that we saw. You know, he made, Mueller made this statement. If we found, if we thought, essentially this is in so many words, if we thought he was innocent, we would have said that. And so that told me, we believe we can't prosecute him now, but when he's out of office... There are crimes here.
1: But the whole we can't prosecute him now. This is what drives me crazy, because there's no law that says you can't prosecute or indict a sitting president. This was a notation made by a clerk. This is not codified in law. Why was that not challenged? Why was that not made to say, wait a minute, nobody is above the law. There is no law that says you can't you can't uh, indict a sitting president.
4: So it is true that you can indict a sitting president in certain extraordinary circumstances. The issue is that the Office of Legal Counsel, which everybody you know, goes by it. the abbreviation OLC, and there's a very, what's considered a controlling memorandum that talks about the real limitations about, you know, just the idea behind, you know, going back to the Federalist Papers and looking at the idea of the executive, the, the energetic executive, and that you want to limit the things that won't prevent the executive from exercising his duty of preserving and protecting the national defense and that having these constraints and from that sort of the evolution of the perspective of the justice department about whether or not you should prosecute sitting presidents um that that is it is limited from that opinion and it's an opinion not law but from Mm -hmm. that opinion from olc but the issue is anybody who would challenge that olc is going to have to come from within the executive branch and there is always inherently a desire of whoever that president and that administration is to maintain their power. So even though like, you know, in this case, President Biden comes in, Merrick Garland's in DOJ, and they might say, well, you know, A, we can go after Trump now if we want to, because he's no longer president. But if we want to change this memorandum to make it easier to charge and indict a sitting president, well, we're the sitting president right now. So the the the, the people who control the, the kind of the the um, the theory of the DOJ about what can or can't be done to the president at any given time are the people who work for the president. Of course. So it, there, it, it's kind of baked into the system that if you want to change it, you're going to act against your self-interest. Right. right
1: exactly. It's just like um, the, 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 it's the reason why they won't stop, you know, won't say sitting members of Congress can't trade stocks while they're in office you know there's so many rules like that that they're not going to und- it's why they won't get money out of politics because they currently benefit from money in politics and they don't want it to adversely affect them if they don't have access to all of those lobbyist bribes and i use the word bribe not you um <laughs> peter struck is with us i got to ask you um you know so when when trump was in helsinki and most of the world was looking on in horror the former guy Actually, I want to get your your reaction to this statement. He's standing there at the podium next to Putin saying the most ridiculous things like giving this guy cover on the world stage. And then he says this.
3: And if anybody watched Peter Strzok testify, it was a disgrace to the FBI. It was a disgrace to our country.
1: What the hell? He's standing next to Vladimir Putin and he says that. What 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 did you think when that happened?
4: Well, it was it was stunning and surreal. I mean, that you got to, like right. At, that was the end of their press conference. Right. Like literally, the next sentence he's like, "Okay, thank you very much, everybody." And he takes a little soccer ball that that Putin gave him, and they walk off stage. So that's that's literally the last thing he says. And what had preceded that. You know, like people like Senator John McCain were saying, you know, that's the most abject performance by a president in our nation's history. I mean, he was saying things like essentially placing Putin's word and Putin's intelligence services. Over our intelligence, yes. I I have no reason to disbelieve him. He said very strongly that he didn't do this, and I have no reason to. I mean, but essentially just giving up any sort of defense of the United States and our national interests. So as an American, as a national security professional, I was listening to this whole speech in disbelief and horror, and you get to the end, and he's he's talking about me, and I'd just been up on the hill and gone through that clown show with Louis Gomer oh and God. Trey Gowdy and Matt Gates and just the like the just show. Where, I'm sorry.
1: No, that's fine. That's okay. You can swear. Yes, you can of
4: the you know, <laughs> and kind that's of the, exactly the what it was. Re- it was a show. The Republican Party in Congress, and then he's talking about this, and so what. It's like you know what a gift to Putin, and I'm sure you know I write in the book that I was worried that Putin was going to start getting alarmed and like be like, oh whoa, cool, you know, and cool it down. You know, you're going to give our give away what we've got going on here. <laughs> right. But then the other thing was, he watched the testimony. And it's like you know what, you're the president of the United States. You're about to go meet the leader of probably our greatest geopolitical rival on the world stage, and then from there you go either before or right after that, you're going to a meeting of like the G7 or some some subset of European leaders. How about you sit down with your advisors and actually prepare for these talks so that you can advance U.S. national security interests instead of sitting there with a couple of Big Macs watching my testimony so you can complain about it the next day, next Putin. Right. But that's, that's the quality of leadership we got out of Trump. That's the quality of preparation. That's the quality of intellectual capacity. That's the quality of... You know, just and, and it wasn't a surprise. He, I don't think he campaigned on anything different. That's just no. people knew that and that's what they elected. And that's what we got. That's why we got Russia about to invade Ukraine right now.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, he set the table for this. So you you watch that happen. Um And then I got I got to get your take by the time January 6th rolled around. You were already out of the FBI, Right. You're sitting yeah. back watching this is the kind of stuff this was your life's work before and you see the capital under siege what what went through your mind at that point
4: It uh, again I it, we all were at the point of uh adjective fatigue, right? I, it was it was stunning because I couldn't believe it was happening. I couldn't believe how poor the defensive posture was around the Capitol, particularly given that this wasn't some secret plot. I mean, anybody who was watching the news, you know, looking on social media, whether Twitter or Facebook, there were all kinds of plenty of discussion about, you know, be there, it's going to be wild. I mean, the president was saying stuff like that. So I think there should have been every expectation that there might be violence. And to see the Capitol so utterly prepared, like I have, I can't tell you how many, you know, working at the FBI's Washington Field Office, which is the investigative office, not FBI headquarters, but the investigative office in D.C. I can't tell you how many State of the Union addresses or inaugurations that I've participated in. And when the US government wants to secure the capital, they can do it really, really well and they have done it time and time and time again. And it looked nothing like January 6th. And so there was a certain amount of shock that it was as, as successful from the from the insurrectionist perspective as it was, but it bothered me to the extent of like why, and I guess the January 6th committee has created, Sorry, the, the dog okay. is getting excited that's here in but, the background as funny. I get excited. <laughs> why it was that there was such a lack of preparedness on the part of the law enforcement community as part of the sort of intelligence gathering leading up to that event, and why we as the government, as the FBI, didn't anticipate that a little more. Because we're seeing you know, all the Oath Keepers who were just charged with the seditious conspiracy. Yep. This wasn't a spur of the moment act. You have a lot of people who are planning ahead of time, communicating amongst themselves, arranging funding amongst themselves, which can be investigated, and for whatever reason wasn't seen. And so there, there are real questions there that I think need to be addressed, and I, I hope they are. Right, you know, and, but, but
1: now, you know, I have this theory, I call it opposite world. It's just, it, it, you know, it, nothing makes sense. And if you take the opposite of what's going on, then there's some, some semblance of truth. It's, it, it, it's sort of like, um, well, like this. Everything
3: you thought you knew, you never knew it all. And Sideways is you- straight ahead. Facts no longer matter. Reality is now fiction. There's a signpost up ahead. Your
2: next stop, Opposite World.
1: So that's, that's where we're living in right now. And you have the Republicans blaming that Nancy Pelosi. Why didn't she have Capitol Hill, uh, t- you know, t- taken care of? Why wasn't it protected? You know, it's just the noise is, is amazing. But then, so Trump does a rally the other night in Texas. And he gets up there and he says to the crowd. If these radical, vicious,
2: racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt.
1: They're corrupt. He's inciting his followers to do the same thing all over again. Or am I just overly sensitive?
4: No, he's doing the same thing. And then he adds on, oh, oh by the way, I'm going to pardon all of you. If oh, we're right. Oh, elected, yes, right? So he's going to so, pardon you know, all. Like, d- go ahead and, you know, break the law because you and all the folks on January 6th who have been treated so unfairly, I'm going to we'll, we'll take care of that. Um, although he's, you know, he made a lot of promises to people who are being can, you know charged right now that he said he would pardon and, and never did. So I'm not I've got to think at some point. The members of the, the influential members of this group who are you know, prone to violence and listening to him have to be looking around saying, well, you know, he didn't back us up on the six. He didn't pardon us. You know, I would hope at some point the reality of following a false God would dawn on some folks, but it doesn't seem to yet. So No.
1: And what's we'll scary what to me is it seems to be escalating. You know, because the Republican Party bows down to him because these these idiots are more concerned with keeping their job than they are with, you know, upholding and protecting the Constitution and the country and democracy. And then you've got the propaganda pushers on Fox and OAN and Newsmax and online. And they are I know there are more of us than them, but they're louder than we are and they're more armed than we are. And frankly, it scares them out of me. Am I right to be that scared?
4: I'd be worried. I mean, look, I'm I, I'm to this day, asked yes, by January 6th, to this day, I am stunned that there was not considerably more bloodshed than there was. And, you know, that, and there was bloodshed. And to be clear, you know, there were law enforcement officers who died. There, there were these things that, again, the deniers saying, oh, you know, well, peaceful protesters. Well, it wasn't, but it could have been much worse. But I think you're absolutely right that it is a matter of time that before we start seeing real violence and whether that's organized or, again, you don't, when you look at the numbers that are this large, where, you know, so many, you know, a majority of Republican voters in polling believe that, you know, January 6th was Biden's fault. Not Trump's, but most populations are not going to become violent. Only a small percentage are. But if you've got a group of 30 million and you say, okay, a tenth of 1% might be inclined to violence. Well, that's still.
1: That's a lot of people. My
4: math is horrible. 30,000 people? (laughs) Right. Right. And then of that, you know, only only 1% of that is actually going to radicalize and get a gun. Well, that's 300 folks. Or, you know, my math's terrible. But you get my point. It, it, it is when you have a body of people that large who feel aggrieved, who are being stoked on by everybody from Trump to... And all these people beneath the talking heads and stuff, There talk about... There might be one or two true believers. Like, I think Steve Bannon believes in... He has some anarchic vision in his head. Or nihilism, or I, I don't exactly know what his sort of <laughs> political viewpoint is, but so many of these folks are just grifters. Right. They are getting people riled up to sell a vitamin supplement or some merchandise or get more clicks on their Spotify show or whatever the case may be. There is not a notion of conservatism as Donald Trump somehow espouses. It's all about lining their pocket. And that's right. you know, that's the feature, one of the features of the Trump administration, the phenomenon, is all the just all the petty, half competent grift that right. surrounds every aspect of it
1: and, and it spilled um, over so yeah, into congress if i were right. you i'm yes, worried and i I'm. am i am and the other thing that worries me is that a big portion of law enforcement is going along with this stuff uh, police i saw at the people at the rally behind him cops for trump and it's not only on local police forces it's in the fbi as well there are federal agents who also go along with this is that something we should be afraid of
4: well, I never, I want to be, I never saw in the FBI anything where I thought that somebody was politically affiliating one way or the other, either yeah. for Trump, against Clinton or Obama or anything Good, as else. as it I mean, should people be. Had, right. Right, as it should be. Now, is there is there implicit bias? Almost certainly. I sure. mean, I think that's true. Most people, I mean, everybody's a little bit racist, right? And, and so I think that's certainly true that there are certainly implicit biases. And one thing, again, you know, love them or hate them, I, I and I, think highly. I mean, my my views on director Comey are very complex, but one thing he was very good about was highlighting the need for the FBI to become more diverse, highlighting the need for the FBI to understand implicit bias, getting in the broader law enforcement community a dialogue going to talk about racism and implicit bias and race relations between law enforcement at all levels and um, minority communities. And so that I think is a factor in this, I think, you know, to the extent, some of it, you know, when you look at January 6th, I think some of it was an honest recall of the summer of 2020 when there is this massive overreaction, in my opinion, to some of the Antifa and Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, Bill Barr marching across Lafayette Square and tear gassing all these peaceful protesters so Bill Barr or President Trump could hold up the Bible in front of the church. I think a lot of career professionals in law enforcement and the FBI looked at that and said, whoa, that got really out of hand. And that when it came around to January 6th, it was like, well, we don't want to get back there again, right? We don't want National Guard helicopters buzzing the crowd to get them. So perversely, an overreaction to a lower threat crowd meant that you had an underreaction to a higher threat crowd come January. So I think a lot of things, and I think, you know, honest to God, if the protesters on January 6th didn't look like me, Mm -hmm. middle-aged white men, I think you might have had, in fact, a very different reaction in terms of violence and bloodshed. Without, and a doubt. those are really hard conversations to have. Yeah, and but they need to be had. So, again, I don't. I, is there an issue? Is there something? Should we be concerned about folks within the military, within the law enforcement communities? Yes. I mean, anytime you have people who have, you know, the, the course of power of the state, right? Whether they're carrying a gun, whether they're driving a tank, whatever the case may be you want to have a strong sense of duty to the constitution and adherence to the constitution and the laws and regulations that stem from the laws and not to any one person. So, you know, the good news is I think there's a huge, there's strong culture of that in the military national guard. eh, It's a little more interesting. Same thing. At federal law enforcement level, for the most part, pretty strong traditions through really hard lessons. I mean, The Bureau went through the J. Edgar Hoover years. They had the abuses of the 50s and 60s. And so there's some really hard lessons that were learned and incorporated into rules and regulations and sort of institutional norms. When you get to lower level, smaller organizations, they may not have that. I mean, and again, I
3: don't,
4: a huge overwhelming percentage, I believe, of the law enforcement community in the United States at all levels is very good, dedicated to doing their job, protecting the public that they serve. But again, all law enforcement is a representative group of American society. And the reality is a huge chunk of American society still support Donald Trump. And a lot of them don't see anything necessarily wrong about what happened on January 6th. So
1: that's amazing. It's a concerning time. Right. Well, that's why I call it opposite world. Peter Struck, you were a career public servant. You worked for the FBI, you know, distinguished service for a long time. And then you were taken apart by targeted by the then president of the United States. You wrote the book. The book is now out in paperback called Compromised. What are you doing? Are you able to find work? What's your life like now?
4: So it's been interesting. Uh, it has been challenging finding the traditional things that FBI agents do when they retire from the FBI. There are that is still a difficult environment because of simply the fact that in a business environment, particularly um, where. Folks are have external customers because of how I've been portrayed by Trump and others. The the what I bring to the table in addition to a decent skill set is also a notoriety that for many people is good and for a lot of people is negative. And when it comes to the business arena, uh, there is a lot of risk aversion there. Yeah. So you know, and maybe hey, you know, you're great, but you know, we don't want to lose three big clients, so we're going to take the second best person. So that's been challenging. I thought it would change a lot when Biden when Trump. Did not win re-election, but I, th- I have come to understand and believe and see that I think as long as Trump is on the scene politically, that there's going to be this kind of interesting uh, personal work environment for me. So, uh, you know, what I've been doing is I, I've been doing some some consulting and research for a great uh, nonprofit nonprofit organization, thinking, trying to decide whether or not I want to write another book. Mm-hmm. I, it was cathartic to write a book, but it was hard. I'm not, I mean, I don't, I I have yet, I suppose there are some writers out there who just turn out books, but I know a (laughs) lot of people find it very hard and I certainly did. I mean, it is, it is work. And, and so again, do I have another book in me? We'll see. Um, but you know, just trying to figure out where I can continue to make a difference. And, you know, as long as Trump is on the scene, I think there's, you know, a common cause there to try and make sure that, you know, Um, do what we can to save democracy.
1: Were you able to keep your pension or did he take that from you as well? No. So I'm right now.
4: So I was fired about a year shy of being able to draw that after 26 years of (laughs) government service. So I filed suit against the government about a year and a half ago, which is still underway, um, essentially claiming one, um, that the government illegally released the text in violation of the Privacy Act. And two, that my firing, because the kind of the career official who decides punishment in the FBI had recommended a much lower set of punishment and then was overruled by the senior members, you know, in response, we allege, to this nonstop pressure by Trump and fired me instead. So, you know, part of the suit is for wrongful termination. And that lawsuit's plugging along. I mean, nothing happens fast, but... uh, the, the short answer is no, I don't have a pension now, but I think, you know, I have every expectation that, you know, the resolution of the lawsuit will will fix that.
1: Wow. Or one last question for you. Have you ever met Trump face to face?
4: Yeah, um, we went. Um, we were actually we were interviewing Mike Flynn and <laughs> the like the third week, second week of the Trump administration went in there to talk to him about conversations he had had with the Russian ambassador to the United States. And Everybody was moving in. He met my, and again, you can read more detail. I you know you got to go and write about this in the book. But my interview partner and I went in and the West Wing is, I mean, they're, they're a couple of floors at least. I mean, they're more going down. But you go into what's called the Situation Room, which is really a series. It's several conference rooms that go in at the street level. And then above that is on the West Wing. And so we're waiting downstairs for Flynn and he comes down and he sees us and grabs us he says, have you ever been to the White House before to the West Wing? And I had, but my interview partner had not. And he said, no. He's like, okay, well, let me give you a tour. Because everybody's like moving in. It's like moving day still, right? Uh-huh. And we're walking around. He's like, oh, this is where the, you know, the press room is. And here's, the, I think it was the Roosevelt room. There's kind of an interior conference room. And then there's sort of this inner, just outside the Oval Office, there's this big kind of open area. And we're kind of spread out and we're heading the to um flynn's office and like the vice president's on the corner white house Counsel, and then flynn's like in the northwest corner and as we walk past like the door to the oval office bursts open and there's trump with two people moving art and you know he had a lot mentioned about he put up the portrait of andrew jackson and they're moving literally moving in that oh my God. painting moving out some old stuff and he's there again to the point of like you know the guy who spends his time With Vladimir Putin talking about my testimony instead of actually worrying about what he should be talking about with Vladimir Putin on behalf of the United States of America, instead of worrying about like, I'm literally not even three weeks into my administration. What are the things I need to be doing for my agenda right now? He's directing the, you know, the, the, the movers for lack of a better word around and what to do. So (laughs) so he burst out and, you know, didn't, I mean, I'm sure he has no recollection of meeting us, but I, you know, remember meeting, seeing him there. And then, you know, he went back in and we went off and interviewed Flynn and Flynn lied to us and get charged and convicted and pardoned of that. And, um, yeah, it was a hell of a,
1: unbelievable, of four years. But, but not since all this transpired, you haven't seen no. him. If you no. were to run into him, what, <laughs> this is a horrible question. I'm sorry. What would you say? Cause I know what I, I know would that, say, I, but I don't, I,
4: don't <laughs> have any, I I don't know that I have anything to say to him. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, it is past the point where it is no longer, I've heard like somebody I don't know who is director Comey or Annie McCabe, who's the deputy and action director for a while. say they don't care. Maybe it was Comey. I care. I mean, it's so, it, it is still notable. And, and you know, However silly, however obnoxious, I mean, he mentioned me. You know, we told, told him it up. You know, well over eighty, ninety times right. over the course of his presidency, and it doesn't ever become normal. But I don't have anything to say to him. I, you know, but he's he's a jerk. I mean, he. You know, when he met Annie McKay, it, it, um, his wife had run for. A state right. um, elected of a yep. position, and and had that as not a won. Democrat. It's, it's, it's oh my God! like yeah, you know, I saw. So I was pretty rough on your wife. You know, I know she lost. How does it feel to be married to a loser? Oh my I'm God! Really, like horrible. And <laughs> right. And so it's like I don't. I don't have anything to say to him. I don't want to dignify him with wasting, you know, five words.
1: Right. And Andy McCabe, people need to remember, he waited until like midnight on the last day when he would, you know. like literally, right.
4: Like literally three hours before Andy would have gotten his. Now, you know, again, to Andy's vindication, he 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 also filed suit. He filed like a couple of days, literally, after I found my suit. But he, he settled with DOJ, got his record fixed, expunged, he retired in good standing, got his pension, got all the things that come when you retire. So at least DOJ made that right. Right. So that's good. But, you know, but it was just a truly petty rushed, you know, we got to get in under the clock. I mean, truly he, it was a Friday night and had he just, the way the federal retirement system and timing works, had he made it to like 12.00 in 15 seconds right. on Saturday, he would have gotten his pension, and he—they fired him at like 10 p.m. Exactly. or something like hours, that. hours, just, just a couple hours absurd. before. But just that, that, that is the—it's it, it, just one of those many embodiments of the the way the Trump administration was.
1: Well, you survived it anyway, as we, we all did. <laughs> to now. Now we need to make sure we survive going forward. Uh, and I think that's going to take a lot of effort on all of our parts. I'm glad you're on our side. <laughs> Peter Strzok, the book is Compromised: Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. It is now out in paperback. Obviously, I've not gotten through the whole thing yet, but I plan to because it's compelling reading. And boy, do you have a story to tell? I'm just I'm sorry that you had to go through this, and I'm sorry that you were put in this position because it's not right. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you being so forthcoming and and willing to answer my questions, some of which were ridiculous. Peter Strzok, thank you so much. All right. Great to meet you. Take care. Bye -bye. bye. Fascinating conversation, I thought. I hope you did too with Peter Strzok. It's interesting now to go back and listen to some of his testimony when he was so attacked by members of the House and the Senate. It's really reprehensible. I hope that gives you a different perspective on what we learned from Peter Strzok and about Peter Strzok. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. We'll take a quick time out and come back and stick a fork in this thing. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler. Brad and Desi will be back in time for the next show. I'm going to end on a bit of a light note because the interview with Peter Strzok was kind of heavy, right? So I think we could all use a little laughter, a little levity, as it were. And one topic that is out there that a lot of people are dealing with is the boycott of Spotify by many artists. It started with Neil Young, of course who said either Spotify can have Joe Rogan or they can have Neil Young, Spotify being the money machine it is, opted for Joe Rogan, to whom they pay something in the order of $100 million for exclusive rights to his podcast. I'm sorry, I don't think anybody's worth that kind of money. Just saying. Anyway, not only are more artists joining with Neil Young, we heard uh, Joni Mitchell stepped up. Then Graham Nash joined in as well. And now, Graham Nash and Neil Young's former bandmates, David Crosby and Stephen Still said, yeah, we're in too. So, I have a couple of songs for you. One is a song parody. Uh, It's by a very talented woman named Lauren Mayer, who does Lauren Mayer comedy songs. You can find her on YouTube and places all over the interwebs. The second one I'm going to play for is a real quickie. It's like a minute and a half long. It is the newest song by Stephen Page. Stephen Page is the former lead singer of Bare Naked Ladies, and he just released this song by himself through Bandcamp, and it's called Choose Young. So we'll start with Stephen Page, and we'll finish up with Lauren Mayer, a little musical, humorous respite from the heavy news that has plagued us for so long.
2: If you gotta choose between spoken and sung, if you gotta choose between your teeth and your tongue, if you gotta choose between Rogan and Young, choose Young, choose Young. Pay him half a cent or pay him millions of bucks. Pay him. She's a bunch of traitors and trunks You can try to dress them up in a tux But good luck He still sucks Sometimes you gotta choose between Caesar and Christ Sometimes you gotta choose between naughty and nice Sometimes you gotta ban a comic book about mice Don't think twice Don't think twice Oh, if you look back now and how far we have come and you're asking how they
0: And muck through a podcast by a proudly provocative schmuck. Neil and Joni said they'd go from a platform spreading what they should not. They fought Spotify and a fact denying crackpot. Yeah, there's a right to free speech, but not to dangerous lying. Don't have two sides, and this crap means people are dying. Neil and Joni said they'd go because this issue's getting terribly fraught. They fought Spotify and showed them they can't be bought. Well, these brave artists are now a movement inspirer. With India, Reed, Niels Law, Graham, Graham, Nash, and Elvira. We said they go because they aren't afraid of taking their shot they fought spotify and showed how much courage they've got spotify made a lame statement but rogan's pay is still immense meanwhile most musicians are lucky to make a few cents They'd go and right wingers' panties are in a knot. They fought Spotify and gave us all food for thought. Neil and Joni said they'd go from a platform spreading what they should not. They fought Spotify and started a juggernaut. They taught Spotify a lesson that ought to be taught
1: fought spotify and a fact denying crackpot lauren mayer they fought spotify <laughs> lauren mayer does these comedy songs she's sort of like a mark russell for the 21st century find her on facebook twitter all the usual places lauren m-a-y-e-r and it was stephen page just before that with a new original song choose young works for me And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. You can always find me at NicoleSandler.com. That's the home base for my show. Heard live weekday afternoons on the Progressive Voices Network. And whenever you want to listen via podcast. So check it out. Okay, I guess we're done. Until next time, as Brad always says, good luck, world. We really, really need it.